We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land we are on today. We acknowledge and pay respect to all elders, past, present and emerging. The Now in the Future podcast is an exciting way of sharing members' stories of opportunities, challenges and provide support and expert advice for Down Syndrome community. Down Syndrome Queensland's vision is to support, advocate for empower people with Down Syndrome to take their rightful places as valuable and contributing members of their community both now into the future. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Now and the Future podcast. I'm Joel Wedd, Lead Education Consultant for Down Syndrome Queensland. In today's episode, our education consultants share their thoughts about a tricky theme in inclusion, barriers. We discuss common barriers that both students and educators may face, as well as try and unpack if barriers are due to mindset, pedagogical practices, leadership, systems, or perhaps a learning environment. We hope this podcast helps to provoke some professional thought and dialogue amongst educators as well as help to build teacher confidence. If you're interested in the services of our education consulting team, in particular our new and free IDA consultation service, you can head to our education services tab on our website www.downsyndrome.org.au forward slash QLD forward slash education hyphen services or you can email me at education at down syndrome qld.org.au we hope you enjoy this episode welcome amy and john once again to the now and the future podcast hi joel thanks for having us thanks so guys, our role at DSQ as education consultants means we get to be on the ground at schools, visiting schools, observing students and teachers, listening and facilitating professional discussion around inclusion. And we often see recurring themes when it comes to supporting students with Down syndrome and intellectual disabilities in the classroom. So I thought today could be a great opportunity to talk about barriers to inclusion and the sorts of things that we've seen in we've heard what's worked well, um, different ways that barriers perhaps could be supported or even altered or strategized around. So thanks again for joining me. Um, I thought we might start with the one that's probably the most common when we're out on the ground, particularly when the student has Down syndrome. And that is the barrier of the fact that the school has never had a student with Down syndrome at the school. So would either of you like to start or I'm welcome to, to go ahead? And... Um, I'm happy to start, Joel. I think that it's always quite nerve-wracking as a teacher when you have a student starting in your classroom um, that may have a disability or may just have um, some form of diagnosis that you've never worked with before, whether that be ADHD or a student with autism. And as we're talking about a student here, who has Down syndrome. So my approach as a teacher has always been thinking about getting to know your students, um, finding out as much as you can about their strengths and their interests, taking that strength-based approach 
that you would with any student that you have, yeah. um, building those relationships, communicating with parents, and knowing that it's okay. You don't have to know everything right here, right now. You're um, going to be learning from them as much as they're going to be learning from you in your classroom context. And as a professional, you would still abide by those teacher standards. You would still differentiate that curriculum where you need to. Um, but it's progress and it's a process. So I think you need to give yourself permission to be part of that process and not um, panic. And if there's something that's not working, then, so for example, if you're finding that the strategies you put in place that you think that the student might um, engage with is not, they're not engaging, then don't take a note of it. That didn't work. Okay, what do we do next time? In the same way you would do with any student that you have in your classroom who is, um, you know, making you think a little bit about your tech strategies and your techniques. So try, try and take that diagnosis or, or that label away and look at the child for who they are as you would with any child and build those relationships, get to know that student and allow yourself time as well. Um, Rome wasn't built in a day. doesn't mean to say you sit back and just educationally babysit that child, but it means that you just um, allow yourself to get to know them um, and, and give yourself permission that, that you're new to this as well. I think, I think what's important there is, is thinking about, you know, before enrolment, you know, as soon as, I guess, as soon as the school knows that a student is um, going to be included in the school community, um, we, um, you know, you make sure that you're, you're getting as much information as you can from anybody who works with that child currently. So you might, you know, in, in the primary setting, you might be connecting with a kindergarten, you might, uh, you know, if it's high school, be connecting with a primary school. Um, but a really robust enrolment and transition program is essential because that's really where you get to know this, who the student is. Um, and like Amy said, you focus on their strengths. You know, don't go into it from a deficit perspective. You know, yes, obviously we know that, you know, everybody has their challenges and everybody finds certain things difficult, but there are also things that we're really good at that make us unique. And so if we if we start from that and we focus on what, you know, what does the student love doing? What are they good at doing? Um, and start from there as a base. Generally, yeah. you find that, you know, you'll have a bit more success, even if it's scary yeah. in terms of, you know, providing supports to a student that, you know, you've never worked with before. Yeah. Yeah, both great points. I think I always like to reassure teachers and schools when we hear them say, you know, I've never had a student with Down syndrome before that realistically that, the, you know, population of people with Down syndrome is quite small. Um, it's not, even though it's the most common chromosomal condition in the world, um, there's still not a lot of people with Down syndrome out, you know, uh, in comparison, I guess, to neurotypical people. So you're looking for that kind of same reflection. Um, if our conception rate is about one to six, seven hundred of babies born, with, babies conceived with Down syndrome, then that's what you'd probably be seeing in a school. So if your school size is around 600, you're really not going to see a lot of students with Down syndrome in that school, unless, of course, there has just been an influx of births or people moving into that area. Um, so a lot, a lot, I feel, is like reassuring, reassuring teachers, you know, about that to begin with. And then... Um, yeah, I always try and talk to them about knowing the learner, which you guys have described, as well as knowing 
the diagnosis or the disability, um, both of which can take time. And like you said, Amy, you can kind of put those strategies or adjustments in place before you know them. But as you said, John, until you actually know that student, you're not really going to know what's going to work for them or what's not going to work for them. So, yeah. But I think it's important on that, Joel, to not go and doctor Google a diagnosis because to know one student with Down syndrome is to know one student with Down syndrome and there may be similarities in terms of um, intellectual disabilities or things like that, but it's not necessarily a pigeonhole. So I think it's really important. Yes, you upskill yourself and you talk to DSQ or other places where you can actually um, access um, quality content around that. But at the end of the day, um, it's about getting to know that student and, and those parents as well. And to embrace the diversity. Yeah. You know, yeah. The whole world is full of diverse people. Hmm. Your classroom is a micro um, example of the macro in the world. So embrace that and find out ways that, as Jean said, you can tap into the strengths and how other students can learn from each other whether they're diverse or, uh, sorry, neurodiverse or or neurotypical, it doesn't matter. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that is exciting, not in a, um, exciting in in the sense that there is diversity that you as a teacher are being challenged with, and so you should be. Yeah. Teaching robots. (laughs) So I guess for me that probably leads into another one that we often hear about the gap, you know, that, students with Down syndrome and students with intellectual disability because we can support both in our schools. Um, Often, you know, that barrier of the students well behind their peers or they're, you know, well behind their year level in the curriculum. And I think that's pretty pretty common, isn't it? Um, When we ask teachers or schools to list the barriers that they're facing with a student, that's one that seems to crop up a lot. Um, Yeah, what are your thoughts around that? Well, you're planning is something that you do uh, ongoing anyway. You know, you have your backward map, you work out what what you need to do from a curriculum perspective and you plan for differentiation at that time, but then moving forward ongoing. So it's a very much an iterative process. Um, And so for any student with um, diverse ranges of needs, you need to plan for them and differentiate them for them. So this is something that you would definitely need to be doing. You'd need to be doing the assessments so that you know that you are pitching your teaching at their level and that they can grow from that cognitively, socially, emotionally. Um, you draw on the general capabilities, as, as um, I think we've talked about in other in other you know podcasts or conversations we've had. Um, don't get so hung up on meeting content descriptors if they're not going, that child is not able to reach that particular content descriptor. You need to go into a different year level conjuncture. I need to look at the scope and sequences. And really, again, this is no different from what you would do with any student in your class that cannot um, work at that year level curriculum. So, yeah, because it's kind of really a barrier that's not going to barrier. change, you know. It's it, not going to change. So is the barrier really, I guess, the mindset of everyone that's working around that student to just accept that there is going to be that gap and that gap may grow. So instead, why not, you know, as we talk about, look at the strengths and look at progress and look at individual achievements. So focus back on that student, track and map where they're at and just, you know, celebrate the the success and the progression that they're making instead of kind of focusing on the, you know, the deficit part of the actual gap there because, you know, as we know, that's hand in hand with, with an intellectual disability. 
one of the things I think is really important, again, I think we said this in the last podcast, but, you know, the permission to be a little bit creative. Yeah. Um, the Australian curriculum is designed, you know, to to be manipulated and used in multiple ways. You know, it's really flexible. Yeah. Um, and that gives us licence, you know, to do things a little differently when we need to. We don't have to be traditional, um, you know, schooling today versus schooling 40 years ago. Sometimes we see too much of a similarity, and and I think teachers just need permission to have some fun. Yeah. You know, you can still do some amazing learning, and, and you know, t- students can demonstrate that learning, you know, according to the curriculum, um, but in really cool ways. Um, you know, so that's where your universal design comes into it, um, really good planning from the onset and giving multiple opportunities for students to to be curious and to figure things out for themselves and then demonstrate that. Yeah, and to succeed in different ways. Uh, and I think that we, get as teachers, get too hung up on the academic and that's what stresses us out. Oh, but they're not reading. And then that gets relayed back to the parents. Oh, but they're not reading. What's their reading level at? We need to remove that mm. cognitive expectation, not remove it off the agenda, but just push it to the side for a bit and have a look at they're not going to be able to sit and work independently or interdependently and they're not engaging, then they're not going to be reading anyway. So let's work on the social, emotional um, and their, their capacity to self-regulate and their understanding of, of being part of that inclusive environment. And UDL does do that very well in terms of accessing the curriculum content in different ways and, and having uh, opportunities to demonstrate their understanding in different ways as well. Um, and that's where the flexibility and the little bit of more creative thought comes into it. So you do have to challenge yourself as a teacher to think outside of the box. And sometimes you might feel that the system doesn't allow you to do that. Mm. But I think if you look more closely at the Australian curriculum and you have the support of your um, peer, your colleagues and those in leadership, that you'll find that there is room to bring in those um, differentiated pedagogical practices that support, allow you to support that child in their needs and actually benefit the whole class. So um, I think, you know, we need to sometimes just hit the pause button with ticking boxes and making pretty graphs around students' academic achievement and look at what is the purpose here, bigger picture-wise. Um, and that's what we're trained to do. You know, the standards are there to support that as well. The standards are not all about academic. There are a lot of standards around communication, building relationships, social and emotional well-being. So you've got the backing of the Australian teacher standards. You've got the backing of the Australian curriculum. Um, you need the support from your leadership um, and trust yourself in what you know is best for your class and your students. Yeah, and I love what you said, Amy, about, you know, not being able to get to the cognitive side, and I'm a firm believer in that. Um, obviously being early childhood trained that to look holistically at the child that whole child development and you know the child needs to be physically you know well and emotionally well and socially well and all those things around that student before you can really tap into that cognitive and it's no different to us as adults if we're really stressed and someone's trying to teach us something new in a really stressful way you know but we're not feeling well we've had a really terrible morning we've got all this other stuff going on we're not going to take that on and learn so you know I'm a firm believer in the social emotional side and you know love my whole emotional regulation stuff because I think you know until people are calm or calmer, um, then they're unable to take on new things and take on new information. It's the same for our students. So when we can, you know, be accepting around that gap and the developmental differences, I think it can kind of calm everyone too. It's coming for the child because they're going to feel more accepted and it's coming 
for the educators to say, okay, all right, this is just something that we're going to work with instead of working against. Mm. Um, yeah. So I want to throw a big one at you now. I know this is a really tricky <laughs> space for us to, to talk about some of these barriers, but what about time? Because, you know, we're all teachers and we never have enough time, even though, you know, we get all these school holidays and we only work from nine to three. But what oh. do we think about, about time as a barrier? Because it absolutely is a barrier. It's something that we all face. Um, I just want to say it does make me laugh as a teacher if someone says to you, you know, what are you, gonna, what are you doing at Thursday at 10.30, week three, term two? And you could tell them, you know, like we are so bound by time. Um, but how can we kind of work with that barrier of time? Is there anything do you think we can do to kind of assist teachers, particularly when it comes to inclusion and supporting students with a disability in ways to work a little bit more effectively um, or, you know, work with that barrier? Yeah. I um, I think, you know, using, using whatever supports are available to you. So not every teacher has the luxury of having a teacher aide in their classroom all day, um, but you do have other students. Yes. Um, and you have some really wonderful, capable, supportive students in your class uh, who may, you know, be able to have really rich learning experiences themselves by working with with other students. And so that is a bit of a time saver. Uh, it, it allows the teacher some time to focus on other kids. Um, but, you know, it also, you know, in a, in a school that is time bound and teacher aid support is time bound um, when you don't have it using, you know, what you've got in your room can help, I guess, mm. get a little bit of that back. Um, thinking from a from a high school perspective, because um, mm. you know, that's, that's sort of my zone, um, I think sometimes, you know, if we, if we look at the average day, the school day, it's all very much period one, period two, lesson one, lesson two, and it's about an hour long and it's each individual subject. Uh, and it becomes very easy then to fill your day, you know, sort of chock-a-block full of things and we busy ourselves. Um, but, you know, like Amy was saying, if we have the backing of our leadership and we have the scope to be a bit more creative again, um, we can actually combine some of those subjects yeah. and learning experiences. So we can actually amalgamate, you know, some of the things that we might be doing in maths with science um, or has with English. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, you've bought yourself a little bit of time um, where you can you know, students can can explore and demonstrate multiple um, achievement standards or, you know, content descriptors for different subjects in, you know, in a, in a time frame, I guess, that's allowed to be a bit more flexible. Um, and I guess, does that, do you think, Sean, that's also collaborative teaching as well? You know, bringing teachers together to work in the same space is going to help, I think, support each other. It's a way of efficiently using your time and and learning from each other as well. Yeah, collaboration is always, you know, it's a, it's a it's a tricky one because you need time, dedicated time to be able to plan collaboratively <laughs> before you teach collaboratively. So, you know, I guess it's it's a, if you, if you're going to go down this route, then as we said, you know, hopefully your school leadership will back you on that, and and that you'll be afforded at least a little bit of time to come together with a colleague, and you can you know plan effectively. But the nice thing about co-teaching or, or collaborative teaching is that within the lesson there are little moments where one teacher takes over yeah. and that frees the other teacher up to do something a little bit more intensive with mm. a group of students or an individual student mm. um you know so 
you know, you, you can be a little bit smart about it, um, but, you know, I guess it's a non-traditional perspective. Um, and there are some schools that are very much operating that way now, but, you know, it's it's a slow yeah. process. I, I've, I agree with that. There's a couple of points there that you made about working smarter, not harder, but also want to reiterate that time is a perennial issue in teaching yeah. anyway. Um, there's too much to cover in the curriculum and um, the new version of the curriculum is supposed to alleviate some of that stress. I'm not sure whether that's going to happen, but we'll have to see how, how we manage that. But I think that, you know, we, we all know as teachers that you, you don't work between, you work between 9, 8.30 and 3.30 with those students. But before that, after that, during the school holidays, there's a lot of preparation work going on. So I know you joked before about the 9 to 3 in the holidays, but for those of um, you who really thought that that was uh, not a joke, it's clearly um, <laughs> something that we do a lot of. Um, but the time of the day with the students is very limited yeah. with the expectation or coverage of curriculum and non-curriculum and hidden curriculum. So um, I think that it's something that we constantly work towards being better at. And as somebody who's been teaching for over 20 years, it's still one of my um, you know, projects to to constantly work on being efficient and time efficient. And one of the ways that I've maybe survived that is to prioritise and to think about what do I want all my students to learn by the end of this session, period, day, whatever time frame you give it. Um, what is the key thing that I would like my students to walk out of the door knowing today? Um, and it's like that inverted triangle, you know, of, of what it the biggest things that we're all going to leave knowing this amount. Some of us are going to know, leave knowing a little bit more. Um, and so you really need to kind of um, prune back the clutter and think about what is the main purpose. And that's where your learning intention success criteria come in. And that's where you um, can differentiate more purposefully and with more priorities in there as well. So you're always going to be stressed as a teacher trying to fit everything in. Having a student in your class with disabilities that may slow you down a little bit, well, that depends on how well you plan for that. As Jan said, there's peer learning, or it might be that what you have um, prepared for them is something that's at the same basis, so they're still engaged in that curriculum area, but they're not requiring you to do one-on-one. -on -one. So building their capacity to work independently and interdependently is key. And if you can give that time, initially to help support those skills that will pay off in dividends later throughout the year because you can't teach the rest of the class if you have a child any child tap 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 tapping on your shoulder wanting your individual demanding needs so putting time aside to build their independence uh, their skills for independence is really important and and building on those collaborative skills across the classroom the learning environment and i think again it's a barrier that can potentially be a mindset barrier Mm. Um, a whole common, a whole school approach, whether it's a whole school approach around pedagogical practices, collaboration, integration, all of those sorts of things becomes down to how are we running as a school? And if the school are running differently to your way of running things, then how are you going to um, establish that um, an environment within your own classroom that's going to work for you and for your students? It might look a little bit different from the person next door to you, but it's working for you. And that's important because it's your students at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think you've touched on an important one when we're, you know, looking at, at teachers and being able to upskill. So when it comes to inclusion and you've got a new student that's perhaps got a diagnosis and you've never taught a student with that diagnosis before, how do you build in time 
to learn more? Um, can it can things be done at the beginning of the year so that there's handover time so that you get opportunities to sit with the teacher from last year if you're able to you know to sift and read through some information together and then are you able to come back at different points say like week three or week five of term one and say hey I've gotten to know the student a bit more I'm just wondering about this or that or what's the strategy that you used here so there's kind of these touchstones where again as staff you can come back and build those into staff meetings you know and I know the school that um, Amy and I used to be in we would do that process where the handover wasn't once it was repetitive it was ongoing until you felt comfortable with you know that student their diagnosis and what actually worked for that student regardless of their diagnosis so um and, I, you know, and, and I guess thinking of staff meetings, offering staff meetings that perhaps aren't just the traditional, you know, stand and talk, but doing things like we used to do where we did teach meets, where you'd have four teachers that would come in that could be expert learners or share a strategy that did or didn't work. And as teachers in the staff meeting, you can sign up to see two out of those four, you know, of your colleagues speak for that day um, and allow, again, time that you can collaborate together you know, and share that knowledge. So I think we've tackled that one pretty well. <laughs> it is it is a tricky one for sure. But as you said, Amy, it's it's always going to be there and it's about how we can manage our time as, as teachers and feel comfortable that, you know, we are working effectively so that we don't burn out. So, okay. and that our, te- our, our, our students are supported. So um, I guess on support, that's probably a good one to, to think about as well. I know we often hear about, um, you know, probably hear this from, perhaps parents sometimes as well as teachers that, you know, perhaps my child isn't being supported enough. And so we might look at the barrier of support and I might go first with this one that I think sometimes the barrier there is actually the understanding of what support is. So I think sometimes when when the word support is thrown around, people automatically assume it's a person and it's a teacher aid. And it's a higher proximal, you know, physical proximity person to the student with a disability. So it's kind of like that one-on-one teacher aid. Um, and, you know, I can be wrong here, but I think a lot of the time that's what it comes down to. I'm just going, get, not getting enough support for the student or the parents saying my child's not getting enough support at school. And so I think if, if we look at, you know, the ways that teacher aids can be used effectively, um, it's not always having that high physical proximity to the student. It's about building that incremental independence and about that teacher aid being able to work with all students and the teacher being able to work with all students as well. So I think that is really, you know, a good one to kind of unpack a little bit when we talk about support because support can be many things, um, not just a person. And like we've talked before, it can even just be mindset and, you know, the philosophy of, of inclusion and culture of inclusion for the school. So that's my little two cents. Yeah, I think sometimes we automatically um, equate support to mean money, um, funding, um, extra, you know, furniture or tools in the classroom, an extra iPad, intervention classes, uh, extra teacher's aids, and it doesn't have to always look like that and it won't always look like that because not all schools are the same they don't have access to the same sort of resources so we have to be again work smarter not harder and think about support being uh, buddy systems I see I've worked in a school where we've had buddy systems in the playground Um, and it doesn't mean that 
those years, let's say, for example, year six students working with year two students, it doesn't mean that those year six students don't have time to go and play their own basketball, not using them. We're developing their social skills as well. You know, teachers are um, professionals. They can strategically think about who would I place, you know, X with Y because they need to develop their social skills or their communication skills and they both have an interest in basketball. So you guys are going to be buddies. So we do things that support our students' holistic needs. And I think buddy systems I've seen working really well in the playground because for me that's where a lot of the problem comes in about the the support in the playground. How do you make sure that, you know, you know, Joe Bloggs doesn't run off and do this or hide under the canteen area where they're not meant to be or go in the out-of-bounds area. So when you develop a, um, a buddy system, everybody's a little bit more accountable for everybody else. Um, and that's a really good skill to learn as, as, as uh, you know, a, a student, as a child, because you're going to need those skills in the, in the outer world as well. Mm. So I think sometimes support um, can be staring at you in the face um, and it doesn't cost a thing. Uh, except for your time management and thinking to be able to to do that. Um, But, yeah. I think, sorry to kind of butt in, but, yeah, I think sometimes when we talk support, yeah, it's it's resources and support are kind of all bundled in that big same, you know, ambiguous area. Is it it funding? Is it people? What is it? And, yeah, and it's absolutely, it is a barrier, like no doubt, and it's going to be a barrier more so for some schools than others. Um, But, yeah. It's about, I guess, yeah, how do we support and and strategize around that? I think one way, you know, to try, I guess, and maximize the amount of support, I guess, using limited resources is to make sure that whoever, you know, your leadership team around this is, like that they have really efficient processes, um, you know, because that that sort of allows for those kind of things to happen. Mm. If there's really good communication with the parents, really good communication with the teachers, really good upskilling of teachers, if the documentation is written effectively, you know, with the teacher as the audience, Mm. um, you know, that sometimes just having the right information gives, gives children a lot more opportunity because teachers are able to plan for that sort of support that looks a little bit different to the traditional one-on-one teacher raid sitting next to them 24-7. And I think the teachers sometimes have their own best resources and I think we don't have enough, going back to time, we don't make enough time to share our expertise of what worked and didn't work. And I think actually when you start to um, open up that conversation to the broader audience within your school community, the support can come in terms of strategies, hey, try this or what about this, or even just that emotional support, so well-being support for the teacher. If you're talking about support in a broader sense, um, checking with them, seeing how it's going, and all of a sudden the the fear of how um, you're going to manage when your teacher's aide isn't there that day is alleviated when you have somebody else coming in and saying, hey, look, how about I jump in for that hour or how about you do this today instead with an audio book? So you feel supported as a teacher when the physical support isn't there that day. Um, And that's, again, comes back down to the leadership and and building a supportive environment within your classrooms. But um, I think with the teacher's aid, I want to just point out that, you know, I've worked for many years with a wonderful teacher's aid and I wanted she wasn't always working with the students who are in the lowest, let's say, inverted commas, maths group. She was working across the room and myself as the qualified professional worked 
across the room as well. So I, I think it's really important that we as teachers use our teacher's aids wisely and not for always the students who are struggling, okay. but also for the for any of the students so that all students get the expectation that you as the teacher and Mrs. Bloggs as the teacher's aide are there to support every student. Yes. Um, and I think that's really important because otherwise what you're doing is you're just creating segregation within your classroom where Mrs. Bloggs is just there for this student or for a small group of students. And then that sort of isolates them and labels them as the group that needs support. And it's really about how you equitably use your support in the classroom in a very inclusive way that sends a much stronger message to your students about the role of the teacher and the teacher's aide or the educators. Let's just not call them teacher and teacher's aide. Let's just call them educators. Mm. Um, so I think that that's, that's something to be really mindful of. Um, don't always expect the teacher's aide to pick up the difficult jobs. You're the teacher. You pick up the difficult jobs as well. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I guess what you're describing there, Amy, is almost the creation of another barrier around mm. stigma. Yeah. And around isolating that student with a disability further if they're only seen to be the student that's requiring support. And as we know, all students require support in mm -hmm. all different ways, whether it's academically or, you know, social, emotionally, um, executive function wise, as every student has, you know, has their own individual strengths and weaknesses. So I think that's, yeah, that's a really great point by alleviating that barrier around, you know, around that type of support, you're also stopping other barriers from happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we've kind of covered probably most of what I'd thought about today. I guess before we wrap up, is there anything that you guys can think of, anything else that we might see or that we have seen? Um, um, I do want to share one story about what happens when your um, teacher age support isn't there because you know they're they're, they're sick or they've been um, re they've been reallocated to another class that at that time. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, uh, you as a teacher are the best resource. Um, and sometimes uh, we need to think, we always need to think on our feet, but we need to be creative in how we think as well. So what, one day for me, this happened and I had a little boy who, um, he didn't have Down syndrome, but he was in a wheelchair. He was very um, limited to obviously his physical capabilities and the teacher's aide who was going to come in and help during sport and was not available. So I was like, okay, right, yo, Amy, what are you going to do now? So he needed to be included. So we went out to the Oval, as we always do, and he was great at maths. Um, and so he became my ta data collector, um, and it was brilliant. And he taught the other students how to collect the data and know the rules and see how many people have been in and out and all the rest of it, all related to the game. But we also made sure that he had some physical activity there as well. And so... For the last 40, um, sorry, for the last 15 minutes, we stopped playing the game that was all, all planned for and we just started playing catching games and things like that that he could participate in as well. So he felt included. So it doesn't always have to mean, oh, I've got to think of a sport where my student with in a wheelchair has to be able to participate. 
physically. Well, they're not going to be able to participate physically. So sometimes we need to remember that that barrier is not going to change. The start, the child is in a wheelchair. He cannot get up and run around and play soccer. That doesn't mean to say you can't do soccer with your class. That's one of the things that you've got planned, um, that, that he is involved or she is involved in that in other ways, and that you build in opportunities for them to be involved um, in the physical activity in another sport. So I don't think it's about it has to be everybody getting the same thing, right? We talk about fair isn't everybody getting the same, fair is people getting what they need in order to be successful. So I think sometimes as teachers we think, oh, we, we put barriers up for ourselves because yeah. we say, well, we can't do that because we have Johnny or Amy in a wheelchair. It's like, no, you can do that. You just need to be creative about how you're going to include them and you need to have those conversations with them, with the parents, to explain that this sometimes will happen. Um, I was going to say, Amy, um, probably what I'm hearing too is a barrier of our teachers' confidence level. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, and that's probably something I, I've definitely seen when we're out in consultations. And teachers are, you know, they want to do the right thing. They're doing the best that they can. You know, they've they've got all these demands and these pressures on them. And sometimes I know when we go out in our consults and we're walking alongside of our teachers. It's about validating them and it's about recognising the amazing work that they're doing and encouraging them and giving them permissions, again, um, building their confidence. Because I I do think, you know, teacher confidence is, if you listen to us, just in the background, that's a lot of it, isn't it? And we talked about mindset, but perhaps also there is a barrier around teachers really believing in themselves, knowing, um, as you say, they are the qualified educator and going with that, making those decisions and um, trusting themselves. And I trusting think. themselves, yeah. yeah. But it does come from the support you get from your leadership as well. Absolutely. I think that that's where a lot of the um, confidence building can come from and also the peers. And, and teachers are good at giving themselves a hard time um, and not thinking that they've done enough, particularly if they have students in the classroom with disabilities. So I think that it's important to actually go back to that prioritising, go back to that purpose. What did you achieve today? To note the, the wins and to share them. Yeah. Um, not, oh, look at me, what I did, an amazing thing. But to have those conversations with your colleagues to um, acknowledge some of the, the challenging things that we face every day um, and to maybe take that barrier down of your own self-doubt. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> All right. Well, we might leave it there for today. It's been wonderful again to have this conversation with you and just engage in some professional dialogue and um, reflect on the sorts of things that we do in our role at DSQ. So thanks, guys, for joining me today. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. If you would like to hear any episodes from previous seasons or more information on any subject relating to Down syndrome, visit our website, www.dsq.com downsyndrome.org.au forward slash Queensland. That's www.downsyndrome.org.au forward slash QLD. You have been listening to the Now and the Future podcast. For more information about this episode and many other topics relate to Down syndrome, please visit the Dyson Drone Queensland website at dysondrome.org.ie slash QRD. Dyson Drone Queensland supporting people with Down syndrome now and into the future.